Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Lowe Blassingame, and I am your host. Today, we have Alyssa Rocco. Alyssa is on a mission to create positive change in the world. She is currently a senior life coach at Handle Group, which she discovered seven years ago after finding a deep desire to change her career. After one session with a coach at Handle Group, she quickly discovered what was missing. She wasn't living true to her own dreams. She wasn't happy, and she didn't know how to become happy. This realization inspired a journey. Alyssa changed careers and became a coach. She learned how to date honestly, transformed the dynamic in her family, navigated addiction, and confronted how to create and maintain great relationships in her life. She brings a deep understanding of the handle method to the work she does with her clients and students at MIT. Her analytical mindset and process-oriented nature led to her work in the media division and most recently to build, test, and launch Inner.U, Handle Group's first digital course. Alyssa grew up in Boston, and she received her bachelor's degree in communication, film, and technical writing from University of Massachusetts at Amherst, and her master's degree in organizational psychology from Massachusetts School of Psychology. She is certified in process improvement techniques and six Sigma practices. She is a dancer and practices five rhythms dance. Alyssa is currently living in New York. Oh, guys, you're in for such a good one. Alyssa is amazing, absolutely amazing. She shares with us at the end of the episode some health things that she's going through and how she is using all of the tools and skills that she's learned to overcome these challenges that are going on right now as we speak. Her sobriety and recovery are amazing. Her eating disorder recovery is amazing. She just is an absolute delight. And I am really, really excited for you to hear about how she has made her life into something that she wants it to be. All right, episode 50. Let's do this. Alyssa, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. It's such an honor and a privilege. I'm excited for the conversation. Yeah, me too. So, okay. You are in Boston. You're in Boston right now. I am. I usually live in New York City. So So you ran away. Out in Boston. But yes, I um, I'm from here originally. So my family is all here. And so you, okay, so I'm reading your background and I'm like, okay, so basically you grew up, you grew up in an Italian Irish family in Boston and your dad's an undertaker. Yes, that's that's correct. Absolutely amazing. I love every moment and thing about that. What is it like growing up as the undertaker's daughter and the oldest of four, right? Oldest of four, exactly. Well, The unusual thing about growing up in that environment is that death is not taboo. Death is part of the conversation. Everybody's talking about it. It really is how we make money. And I think what I learned from my dad is he really knew how to be with people when they grieve, when they were at their, you know, really saw the dark. And I always wanted to help people like he did. But I also really saw his relationship to death being so close to it. 
he really sort of treated it like, well, people will remember me when I die. It was sort of like this martyred way of thinking about death. Like everything he had on his list was like, well, it doesn't matter if I can't do it in this lifetime because people will remember me when I die. And I just thought that is so lame. And we've giggled about this since because I'm like, I I want to be proud of how I die. I want to live in a way that I'm content when I die. And I didn't know that when I was young, obviously, but ultimately I think it really informed the decisions I made to become a life coach because I was inspired by that sort of uh, mission that was one of them anyway. So when you say like up close to death, obviously he's up close to death, right? Um, That's definitely, and, and it's funny, my sister is an artist and an illustrator in San Francisco, and she does this series around... Uh, she lost her best friend uh, who was hit by a car in in San Francisco when she was 24. And she does this illustration series around how death is this like really natural thing that we don't talk about. Right. And, and how all the implications of that, of like, it happens all the time, but we can't talk about it. So you're not prepared for it. So you don't know how to deal with it. You know, everything that comes along with that. And so I always, you know, think thinking from the perspective of you grow up in where your what your dad does for a living is deal with death all day long, and not just like he's not just selling the coffins or sending the flowers. You know, he is in he is in it, like you know, every aspect of it from you know gory details all the way to the flowers kind of deal. So. When you have death as a regular part of your life, how does that influence the living part? Like when it's part of the conversation in your family, how does that influence the living part that you saw that was, particularly as a child, that you saw was different from other people? Yeah, I think I was just always comfortable with it. I grew up, my grandmother lived upstairs from the actual funeral home. And actually later on in life, I lived up there as well. But I remember just going downstairs and seeing dead bodies and touching dead bodies. And that was like what it didn't scare me. And I also remember having comfort with like, you know, death is more of a physical ending, not a spiritual one. So when people died, I still talk to them. And that was normal, right? So like, it, was, um, it, it made you more spiritual. Exactly. It made me more spiritual in that the physical life is more fluid. And I know this is maybe a little bit woo-woo, but I just it was just sort of how I saw that when our bodies die, like there's a there's a physical ending to our lives on this earth as we know them, but not a spiritual or a soul ending. And so I just grew up in an environment where I wasn't afraid of death. I talked to people who died. I felt like they were all my angels. You know, when I, my grandparents passed eventually, I lived in the room that my grandfather died in and I just felt very protected and always, you know, they were my angels and they still are. And how did other people react to the fact that your, you know, your dad was an undertaker? the map, people have a lot of curiosity about death and the business of death death and dying. And 
So that was something like six feet under. I was sort of known as that girl. People were always asking questions about it and people would, you know, come over and sort of like be curious about it. So there was that. Um, I just think that death is definitely something that we're, you know, like in my business now as a life coach, we dub death like the 13th area of, of life because it, there's 12 areas of life that we really deal with here on this world. But then it's such it's such a big part of our life and something that is inevitable for all of us. And so I think, you know, for me, it was just really about talking about it and having it not be taboo and having, you know, it just be something that is part of life the same as living is. Right. Interesting that your dad was a death coach and you're a life coach, right? (laughs) True. I never thought about him as a death coach, but that's very spot on. I love that. Yeah, he was. He coached coached people through every aspect of it, right? Yeah, it's true. It's interesting. So what was your, aside from, you know, that piece of it, what was your childhood like? Yeah. So I would say that my childhood looked very normal. I, you know, I grew up in a middle income, you know, regular, normal childhood, everything looked fine. I would say that inside I was always incredibly anxious and nervous. And I grew up in a very religious household. My mom is Catholic, always, you know, praying church on Sundays. But I think that how that impacted me was I was very like always praying to God, always feeling guilty, always feeling like I needed to be saved from something. And that was pretty much how I lived, you know, survived childhood until I got to high school, very scared child. And I had a couple of different outlets. One was dance which I was talking to Christiana about yesterday. Dance was my refuge from my mind. It was the way out of my mind. And another was sugar. And that was my first addiction, I would say, where I would do anything. I mean, I would steal my brothers and sisters candy. Like I I would do anything for candy and sugar and very much plotted and strategized how to get that into my life. And so that, you know, looking back, was the first place that I really could see addictive mind and behavior. What were some of the things that are different for like from the child that, you know, really wants to have candy to the child who's using it as an escape? Like, how did you, how did yours look different? I think that it was the way that I rewarded myself. So I can't, I can't speak to how it would be like, how it would be different for normal versus me now knowing I'm an addict. But I think for me, it's more the obsessiveness about it. I always had an obsessive mind. And that was the first thing I put my obsessiveness on. It was like, I I just always knew how to, like, once I had it in my mind, I wanted sugar. That was it. And I remember I used to eat waffles and when I was a kid for breakfast and I only ate waffles because I got Cool Whip with it. And then after, like, I remember after a while, I was like, why am I eating the waffle? Because I remember the Cool Whip just got bigger and bigger, but more and more and more. And the waffle was like secondary. I'm like, why do I have that at all? And I just switched entirely to whipped cream. Like that was what I had like for breakfast for a period of time. So it's just like, I just, you know, was obsessed. Yeah. 
Yeah, I do know. (laughs) (laughs) I know exactly. Yeah, I always think it's funny, you know, when I'm feeding my kids and it's like waffles or pancakes or whatever. And meanwhile, we're like, okay, you can't have insert chocolate pudding or whatever before dinner. You can't have it at, you know, whatever, whatever the thing is, because like it's not dessert time or whatever. I don't know what, whatever, like random decision, you know, like socially acceptable thing that is in my head about it. And I'm like, you just had like a waffle with, you just had dessert for breakfast. Like, what am I talking? You know, just these, it's, but it's interesting. It's kind of like mimosas in the morning. Like I, when I got sober, I was like, okay, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait a minute. I was drinking vodka in the morning. You said that wasn't okay. All I had to do was add some champagne and orange juice. And now I'm, now that's okay. Like, wait a minute. I was drinking the wrong thing, you guys. That doesn't mean if you're not an alcoholic for drinking in the morning, that then, you know, just and it was it's kind of like the sugar, you know, the sugar thing, right? Where it's like it's super unmanageable if you're eating the wrong thing. But if you're eating the right thing, then it's breakfast. Completely. Oh, my God. I can so relate. (laughs) (laughs) So so did other people notice this was a thing or like were your parents like, oh, Alyssa, you know. Or not really. There's four of you, so probably not a lot of time. Well, not in my family, but I would actually, I had a best friend who lived next door and I was known in her family as the candy bowl girl because I would go over to her house and literally steal every single piece of candy in the candy bowl in the middle of the room. And I would act like nobody knew what I was doing. And I would always leave one because I was ashamed of taking the last one. And then I would cartwheel home next door and the candy would like go flying and I would like sometimes leave trails and everybody knew that I was always stealing the candy. So that was like a cute story still to this day, you know, her, my, my, my friend from childhood, her father will call me the candy bowl girl. So that's so funny. So yeah. So other people notice, did it, did a weight problem accompany it? Not until high school. So in high school, I stopped. I was a gymnast. I was a competitive gymnast and dancer growing up. In high school, I really started caring more about friends and being popular than I did about exercise. And I started gaining weight. And that wasn't okay by me. And therefore, I would control my weight by binging and mostly binging at that point. I think high school was really when I started, you know, having a very dysmorphic view of my body and being obsessed about, you know, looking good. And therefore it wasn't going to be okay to eat whatever I wanted anymore and gain weight. And that's, that's the approach that I took and nobody knew about it. I didn't tell anybody about it at that point. Um, it didn't come out till much later. So I have a kind of like probably might be silly question, but do you think that the fact that, so death is this natural thing that happens to us, right? And it's something that we all kind of partake in, but then people go and they have someone put makeup on the dead body and like make it look all pretty on the outside when, I mean, the reality is quite different. And this is a very important accepted, particularly if you're Catholic, you have the viewing. And, and so do you think any of that 
infiltrated as like it's always good it's always important to to present a certain way like even until your dying moments like you have to like you because you probably saw dead bodies before they were made up and so you knew you knew what the difference was right so as a kid it's like oh this body isn't ready to be in front of people like until your dying moment until you're put in the ground you have to like you have to be made up I don't know I just popped into my head is like, I wonder if... Yeah, I, you know, it's a really interesting theory and definitely subconsciously probably made a difference for me. I hadn't thought about it that way until you just brought it up. But I did grow up in a culture, my family culture, where a lot of attention was put on how you appeared. And that was not just from a vain perspective. Like we really, you know, my dad really cared about looking good. And if you look good... You were good. And I really saw that. And I thought that if I looked pretty, if I looked attractive, it didn't matter what I did behind the scenes because all that mattered was I looked good. So I definitely thought that that was the way, except I couldn't solve the problem of how empty I felt inside. And I really did. I really you know, inside was consumed with a lot of worry and guilt and just comparing myself to other people. And why did everyone else look so happy? And why was she popular? And why did she have more friends? And the, it, on, it was a constant nagging in my mind that I wasn't enough. There was something wrong. And therefore I was trying to solve that problem by presenting okay. And it seemed like it worked for everybody else. And on the outside, I was getting accolades for right. you know, looking a certain way, but it just, it never, it never solved that inner problem. And I kept looking for ways to solve the inner problem. Food was one of them. Then came alcohol a little bit later. Mm-hmm. So how did you stay away from alcohol in, in the high school years? I drank a little bit, but it wasn't, it didn't have give me the high as the food constriction did. And I also had very protective older best friend in high school who was like, you know, stay away from the older guys, stay away from the booze. And so it was just like, it wasn't super present in my life until I got to college. Okay. And, and it sounds like, so two things, one is that when you say that like restricting was a big behavior, it sounds like that, you know, that's a very getting the high from anorexia, right? From that, exactly. um, you know, and, and, and I hate to say this because I only say it because people, hopefully someone will relate, but from the perspective of someone who struggles with binge eating disorder and compulsive eating, it, it was like, I felt like I got the worst eating disorder. I'm like, why did, you know, like, like if I could, if I had to have an eating disorder, couldn't I have the skinny eating disorder? Like, what is this? This is such bullshit. I have to have like the worst of the disorders, you know, <laughs> but so fun. I, I literally I, would, would, and it literally would, would sit in a room full of eating disorders and think to myself, like, I got totally, f-ed. I got, f-ed. this is bullshit. My sponsor said one thing to me, one thing to me, and just for for listeners, she said, Ashley, maybe the universe knew that you weren't strong enough to be the person that had to gain the weight to get well, that you were the person who needed to lose weight to get well. And I was like, oh, that's like, that is, that is mind blowing. Like, because the thought of having to gain weight to get well 
was is like that is terrifying that is terrifying and that's probably what you experienced in some form actually yes very much so i remember when my it wasn't until many years later when my coach actually forced me to gain weight and that was the most horrifying scariest moment and also i went through the egg freeze process and putting a lot of like so the process of actually then wanting to have a baby forced me to be okay with having to gain weight. And so we'll probably get into that a little bit later. Just to close the loop on this little piece, one thing that I discovered about anorexia, right, which is really um, starvation, like I'm not, you know, scarcity, very much scarcity and getting high from that control and that restriction. I not only was that way with food, I was like that with everything, with joy, with pleasing myself, with pleasure, I with money. Like I really lived on that model of getting high from nothing in so many areas of my life, which also really obviously cut off joy. Like I, I cut off like letting myself experience all those beautiful, wonderful emotions that we're meant to experience as human beings. So I don't know if that makes it up to you, but um, <laughs> it was very much true. No, no, it's it's just a funny, it's like, it's just that level of sickness where you, I'm sitting in a room full of people and we're struggling. And instead of like, oh man, that's, you know, oh, you, you had to have a feeding tube or, you know, whatever it is. Right. And I'm thinking to myself, like, I got screwed. I got totally screwed. I had to have this, you know, you know, and, and it's just, it's like that always comparing, you know, it's like, it, like to my dying moment, you know, like I'm going to be comparing and, and the, like the grass is always green, like never really always wanting to be something different than what I am and, and focusing on how the problem I could have is different as opposed to the solution to make the whole thing better, you know, just like it's, it's a, it's a mindset you know, it's an addiction mindset, I think, that is constantly going on for us. And I also think that, you know, anorexia is something that a lot of people don't understand very well in the sense that they, they're they like, just eat, just, you know, like you're being stubborn or whatever. Like there's just a lot of stuff. And and some of that mindset is, is that too. Like I just thought there was something wrong with me because I couldn't starve myself. Right. And that, that's where drugs came in because that was the only way that was happening. I'm just not capable. So, like, you, you're a restriction on joy, right? I am like an indulgent. Like, I, where like I, I just am, the train is moving so fast. I just need, it's scarcity in the other direction. It's like, I just have to absorb as much of it as I possibly can because I never know when it's going to come back. It's probably never going to be here. It's never going to happen for me. And so I just have to take everything that I need right now. Yes. So one really cool tool that I've learned that is really addresses this moment is naming that voice. Okay. Tell us about that. Humor about her. So my anorexia, I've named Rex. Rex, I call her Rexy. Okay. Because she's never going away. Like that voice of like, do I wish I was always a few pounds less on the scale? Like I used to cancel dates if I wasn't 104 pounds on the scale. That's what she says to me. You're not good enough because you're not at the right weight. Like that, that 
first knee-jerk response that is my disease, it doesn't go anywhere, right? I just don't listen. I know exactly the voice. And therefore, calling her Rex and loving her up and remembering she's just part of what comes with me is one of the ways that I navigate it. And that is something that I learned through coaching of how to actually name those voices and develop a sense of humor about them so that they don't own me anymore. I own them. I can I can put Rex in her corner. Right, right, right. And now everyone is wondering if we're all uh, multiple personality disorders. <laughs> you know, yeah, well, you know what's funny is that I, I used to say when... Um, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, when I came, you know, I got, I got into like substance use recovery and they were like, you're a drug addict and an alcoholic. I was like, oh, thank God. I was worried. It was look, I was like, oh no, the voice, you know, the whole thing. And, and they're like, well, are you hearing other people's voice? I'm like, no, no, they're my own voice. It's my own voice, but it's still, you know, it's loud and it's different things and whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's alcoholism. I was like, oh, you know, just that relief utter relief. Like I thought we were in big trouble. I thought this was something way, way worse, but it is like, it's these different voices that talk to us that are different components of our personality. Yes. So, okay. So what was the threshold for not going on a date? 106? 104. 104. Okay. 104. (laughs) So what if you were, what if you were 105, 105? It was one moment in particular. There was this guy, oh, and I really liked, and he asked me, and I had been wanting him to ask me out. And it was like a Monday after a binge over the weekend, which was very much how I drank. And so I can tell you about that. I'll speed it up a little bit in a minute. But I would drink over the weekend. And then Monday, I remember it would start all over again where I would control, control, control. And I woke up and I was 104. And that was like, I, I ended up canceling, you know, my date because I just felt so bloated and gross and it wasn't okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it just reminds me of the, um, maybe you're much more uh, dignified, but where like my friends and we would be like, oh, did you hook up with him? We're like, no, I like him. I only hooked up with the guy I don't like, you know, like where you have these like, these like for people you like, it has to be, you have to be like a certain level of perfection, right? Like never mind the fact that for, you know, Joe Schmo, it's no big deal. But, uh, you know, if you actually like the person, like it's a whole, you're putting on the whole, this whole persona of like who you want them to think you are. A million percent. That was my MO <laughs> in every way. Oh, sorry guys. It's our worst kept secret. Um, <laughs> you're like, well, yeah, she just won't put out. <laughs> so you, when did, so you had these friends that looked out, out for you in terms of the drinking piece. When, so you get to college, where'd you go to college? I went to UMass Amherst. I started at UConn and then I transferred into UMass and UMass and College is where my drinking really took off. And this was really because one, I discovered when from my first sip of alcohol, I had, it was, it was that what they talk about in the big book where there was this feeling of elusiveness, like this indescribable feeling of just confidence. And I was the most powerful human being in the world. I could say anything and I could be totally true to myself when I started drinking. And that was the part that was so, I mean, obviously there was physical craving and there was the mental obsession, but I was, in, I, I was attracted and 
loved alcohol for that reason. And it became my new favorite thing more so than the food restriction. Although I very much, when I drank, where I always landed was in a bag of candy. I mean, that was like what would happen. So in college, I would drink to a blackout. I couldn't, I never knew what nights was going to be able to stop or, you know, go to bed safely and what nights I was going to blackout and wake up with candy, some random place. And that's how I drank, you know, through college, still bulimic, still controlling my weight, still very, you know, so I had those addictions. I mean, and I really isolated myself in college. I felt very disconnected from people, very dark, very alone. And as the end of college neared, I was like, even more so, like I was scared because I graduated. I had a communications degree. I had no idea what I was doing after college. It was like the first time in my life where I didn't have a structure set up and I was scared. So drinking a lot, binging a lot on food and also controlling what I ate and pretty isolated and sick. Do any communications majors know what they want to do? I don't know. I really, (laughs) you know, my dad told me, he's like, you should go into communications because you're a good talker, Alyssa. And I'm like, okay, that sounds like a good idea. And then my senior year, because I was so petrified I was going to graduate without any plan, I put myself through the English department at UMass had this technical writing certificate program where they did 99% place people out of college. And I did that as like my Hail Mary my senior year because I'm like, well, maybe I'll get a job through them. And I ended up getting a job in biotech in Boston. And that became my new obsession after because I was like, I'm just gonna, this is gonna be my saving grace. It's gonna, you know, give me my value, make money. And I took on climbing the corporate ladder like no one you've ever seen. I really knew how to make relationships and make myself, you know, grow and learn. And I was uh, always, I loved learning. So it was one of the places I could put my, my obsessive mind to good use, except that the problem was I never solved what I was doing in the background, which was still overly working out so that I could, you know, restricting what I ate so that on the weekends I could go party to the max. And that was really how I, I lived all through my twenties. Also dating the senior top guy at work and lying about it. And just like, you know, again, presenting happy go lucky girl and behind the scenes was just numbing out and not telling anybody about it. How did the bulimia piece come in? Was that a, was that a a very regular piece? And did, did you hide that? Like, oh, I'm throwing up the alcohol. Like, was there any component? Like, how did those things look? Yeah. Good question. It was not super regular. It was when I, so I would definitely binge meaning that I would control and restrict during the week and binge on the weekend. And if I over binged, I would be bulimic and that would be the end of it. It was also emotional based. Like I remember being around my parents when they were fighting and repressing all of these feelings and then deserving eating and binging because I was better than them. I didn't get into their drama 
I deserve something for witnessing what I couldn't control. Mm, that deserve. I mean, you know, we, I, I see it all the time. I do it all that, you know, it's like, if you, we do it with our kids where it's like, if you do this, you can get a piece of whatever it is that you want or like just regularly how food is, you have a celebratory dinner, you have, you know, like we'll take you out to, you know, it's just, and, and so it's, that's a really hard place, particularly when you have that eating disorder component, like to get out of that, this is my joy. This is my reward for enduring the feelings. Exactly. And it was convenient, right? Because... Right. You're going to do it anyway. I was going to do it anyway. And in that moment, I got exactly what I wanted. I got to eat, not gain weight, and not have to tell the truth about what I really thought and felt to my parents. And for me, you know, what I learned was all of my addictive behaviors really were convenient in not getting me to deal in relationships. And I was petrified. That was, that was my biggest fear and was in being vulnerable and being honest. I had no idea how to do that. And so, you know, those behaviors, like all of this worked perfectly together to have me, you know, look one way and then really be something else. And it all kind of came to a head actually about seven years into working my job at the biotech company, being successful, about to marry this man I was dating for five years. And I started to get really scared because I knew that I just knew that the way I was drinking alcohol and I was lying about it. I was like, you know, would sneak. I was, I was such a sneak. I, we would be watching my boyfriend. I would be watching, you know, football on TV and I would pretend to go to the bathroom and I would take swigs of beer from the kit, the fridge. So I was very much sneaking, had devil life. And I just, and I knew that this wasn't right. Like there was something that was going to have to push. So I thought that changing careers was the answer. So I started looking. I went back to school. I got my master's in organizational psychology. I decided I was going to leave biotech. I decided I was going to help people. That was what I needed. And that is fortuitously what landed me in a one-hour coaching session with a life coach who showed up. You know, I decided I was going to go become a fitness instructor also. And I was doing this training in New York to be a fitness instructor. And this life coach was there and she gave out these coupons and I sat down for one hour. And in the one hour, it was the first time somebody had read what I wrote about my dreams, about what I actually wanted and actually reflected back to me what I was thinking inside. And what she reflected was, why are you going to marry this guy? You're not in love with him. And I was like, oh, shit. She's right. And that is what started this whole long journey where I told him the truth. I'm like, I don't know if I can date you anymore. Like I was, I was so petrified. I did this longer weekend with them called this weekend workshop, designing your life. And in this workshop, I told a room of strangers that I was bulimic. And that is really what started my recovery journey because in that moment, I knew I couldn't lie about it anymore. And I made a promise 
to them and to myself and to my family. I came clean to my family. I told them all that I was doing this. And I said, if I do this again, I'll tell you. And that was the first time I started learning like real accountability. Like this is all the stuff that we teach in coaching is really how to be true to yourself, right? By taking action and making promises and having accountability around what you say you're going to do. And so after that, it only was bulimic one more time because the pain of having to face them and tell them was beyond. I didn't want to do do that anymore. And that stopped that behavior. So were you engaged to this guy? No, but we were talking about getting married. Okay. And so you tell this room of people that you are bulimic. What did that, like, what was, what did that, what did you think people were going to react and what, what was that experience like? It was easier to tell people who were strangers the truth. And I think that you see that a lot. I know what she recovers, they have the shame booth, like just being able to just share our story is so powerful. Wow. But I, I just remember the experience of telling a room of strangers and there was just like this, this like relief that flooded through me and all of this emotion that I didn't know was inside at all. I really, you know, I'd worked so hard over my whole life to repress everything that I didn't know how much I had inside of me until I was staring at everybody, telling them that when my parents get upset and they fight with each other, I use that as an excuse to go be bulimic. Like it just all came out and it was overwhelming in a really beautiful way. Cause I realized in that moment that I couldn't keep lying. And also I didn't have to because their response was so generous and loving. And I instantly felt that. And now looking back, I know that that's God's grace. And that's very much how it's worked for me over the years. When I tell the truth, I receive God's grace in that moment. Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, everybody. This is Ashley Loeb, Blossom Game the co-founder of Lion Rock Recovery and your host. Lion Rock Recovery has introduced a support meeting specifically for people struggling with anxiety related to the COVID-19 pandemic. Structured as an ongoing workshop, the COVID-19 anxiety support meeting will teach coping skills and be a place to share and connect with others also feeling the effects of this crisis. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. Let me repeat that. Everyone struggling with anxiety about COVID-19 is welcome. To view the meeting schedule and join a meeting in session, visit www.lionrockrecovery.com and click on the orange banner at the top of the page. You can't miss it. Together, we will learn to feel more centered and empowered in the face of this great challenge. Okay, so you tell the boyfriend, this isn't going to work. You tell this room of strangers, you're bulimic. You only do it one more time because you have to tell your family what does the next phase of this journey look like? Did, did you, this is the eating disorder. Where did the alcohol come in? Yeah. So alcohol was still very much behind the scenes, but alcohol for me was less, less of a obvious criminality because I kept it so hidden and I didn't do it all the time. I was not ever, not an everyday drinker. I was a binger. So of course, so, you know, next to people who drink a lot, my family, big partiers. I was the one that drank the least. So it wasn't the obvious issue. 
And I was able to really get away with it for a little while. So what happened next to my journey was I decided my next career move was going to be to train to become a life coach with this company, which I fell in love with and realized they not only work with people one-on-one, but also have a corporate division and really go into companies and transform the corporate culture of a company and help people to be honest. And that was absolutely what I wanted to do. So I trained with them for two years. And when I graduated as a coach, I moved to New York City. And that's where I thought my life was taking off. I'm like, you know, I had money in the bank from my corporate job. I had, you know, went to Australia by myself for a few weeks. Knew, like I just felt like I was on top of the world and it didn't go that way because alcohol caught up to me. So what happened was... For three years, I really worked as a life coach and I was not very successful when I started because as you can imagine, I understood theoretically what people should do. I could give advice, but I wasn't living true to it in my own life. So people did not feel connected to me. And I, you know, got fired a bunch when I started. And so I'm like, well, The problem is I need more business experience. And so I started doing other jobs and I basically filled my plate. So I was working all the time, not just with coaching, but with other things and still very much doing exactly what I was doing before. I was restraining my food, drinking on the weekend, rinse and repeat with periods of sobriety. And I really could prove to myself in that way that I didn't have a problem with alcohol because I would go months without drinking at all. But it was very much restraint and willpower. The minute that I started drinking again, it was like all bets were off. I could drink to a blackout. I didn't tell anybody that. And I kept going for a period of three years. And at that point, I started to get a little bit more uh, responsibility at work and everything blew up because the lie of I couldn't keep my word to myself with alcohol, I wasn't telling anybody how obsessed I was with thinking about it. That really got to a point where the integrity of teaching something so different from that, I couldn't sustain anymore. And I started to get really sloppy. So what it looked like in the regular world was I started to get sloppy. People complained. Inside, I was just constantly anxious and worried. My life became really unmanageable. And in the summer of 2015, I simultaneously, like one after another, it's like the, you know, what's that word when everything comes down? I lost my apartment. I was invited back. I ran out of money. Like I was in debt. I had to like come clean of like, oh my God, I really put myself in some debt. And I got a call from the head of the my, my boss essentially. And she said, I don't know what's up with you, Alyssa, but something is really up with you. And we, you're fired. Like we, we can't have you on staff this way. And what we want you to do is make a list of your lies. And this is giving you a little bit of information about how we work as a life coaching company, but we really deal with helping people be true to themselves. And so I was told to make a list of my lies. And of course, what came up on my lie list was all the times I drank and didn't tell anybody about it, all the obsessive thoughts I had about it, to which the founder of the company said, you're an alcoholic. And I said... My my disease said, no, I'm not. And I was given an ultimatum. I could either leave or I could 
take on a different role inside of the company and get sober and to actually move out, she opened up her home to me and gave me an opportunity to live out in Westchester and get sober out there and take on a different role inside the company. And I took that. And that was another moment of the grace of God, just guiding me on my journey. Yeah. Wow. Wow. That's, that is wild. Um, that's, that's really what, what were some of the complaints that were coming out? Just lobby and people didn't feel, people felt disconnected, but also like, I think we can tell, like we're so, we're so responsive to people's energy and my energy. I was, people could feel the wall that I had. Right. So it was like, I was very much operating from my head where I could give you know, spew guidance, spew perspective, but it felt so disingenuous because people can tell that there's something was off and they were right. (laughs) So you go to Westchester to get sober. um, Gosh, yes. And you're living with your boss and and her family. What was, so what did you, what did that look like? Like you must've thought that because you could keep these periods of sobriety, but then you write this out, you, you take this opportunity. How did you, how did you kind of face that, that truth? Well, at first, very much in denial. I went into AA knowing my life was unmanageable, but not thinking I was powerless over alcohol. And so in that way, even though I got a sponsor, I did all the steps, I did everything the way I was supposed to do it. But it was a lie because I didn't believe that I deserved to be long there. And at the same time, I wanted to save my job. So I did anything that was asked of me. And until this point, I'm a city girl. I never lived in the country my whole life. I don't cook. I was cooking now for an entire family. I had no idea what I was doing. I remember the first time I made chicken in the oven and I cooked it upside down <laughs> and I like, it was not cooking. <laughs> there were so many horror stories of me cooking. You can only imagine. <laughs> I just, at, at the, um, so I'm like cooking and I have this like radically different life. I've always had a corporate job. So like I was making all the money and all had all this accolades. I was traveling around the world as a corporate employee. Now I'm living on a farm cooking at NAA. All my friends are getting married or having kids. And I was so miserable in my mind. Like, what am I doing here? I'm behind. I'm never going to catch up. People are passing me by. How dare they? They don't know who I am. Like here I am resentful thinking, not thinking I'm an alcoholic. I mean, doing the job and doing everything, you know, but really struggling with this label of being an alcoholic. And so what happened was I, you know, for a year and a half, I stayed doing the program, sort of like lip service, doing everything right. And my life got better and bigger because I was sober, right? I wasn't drinking. So I took on more responsibility. My role grew. I learned how to cook. And about a year and a half in, I decided I was going to, you know, I left for the weekend to go to Colorado and I ended up drinking kombucha. 
And I, I count this as a relapse because in the moment that I was handed the kombucha glass in Colorado, I absolutely knew that there were traces of alcohol, traces of liquor in this kombucha because it came off the tap and I didn't care because in my mind, I decided, screw all this. I'm going to go around the world. I'm going to dance. I'm leaving. I don't need this anymore. So all of my is all of my behaviors of people pleasing and saying yes and all were still there. Nothing changed. So I came back and I essentially from that trip and I essentially resigned from my job. And the founder looked at me, Lauren, and she said, "You sound like an addict, Alyssa. How quick before you get a drink?" And when she said that, of course, again, my disease says, "No, I'm not." But I was able to just not do anything, not drink and just watch my mind for the next two days. And my mind went to every single place I was going to go drink and party as I traveled around the world and danced. And that was another moment of God's grace because in that, in that moment, I realized I'm an alcoholic because only an alcoholic would destroy their life like that, destroy everything that they love, that they had worked so hard to build for a drink. So that's when I decided I was going to do sobriety the way I needed to do sobriety. And I wanted to find people who were like me. And I found women's organizations like She Recovers, which is a huge women's organization that are helping women recover from anything, not just alcohol. But I also went deeper into the 12 steps and really got honest about my program. I found the right sponsor. I started doing the 12 steps with the big book really in depth. And I really owned my disease and owned my life and really took it on for me. And that was the first time that I really started doing something different for me, not for anybody else. And that created the shift. Yes. And how long, how old were you at that time? 33. 33. Okay. And so how long have you been sober now? Since I went into the program of AA in 2015, and I had the kombucha in 2017, June 2017. So over okay. Okay. years. And so for you, like, how do you handle, you know, there are lots of people who drink kombucha in AA or in recovery where they don't consider it a relapse. How do you, like, how, are people like, oh, that's not a big deal? Or have you come into contact with that? Or people are defensive about it because they drink kombucha? Or like, how does that, how, how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I tell them it's a personal sobriety date. Your sobriety date is a personal decision. And for me, I knew that that kombucha had, the the kind I had at least, had traces of alcohol in it because it was off the tap in Colorado. And I knew that before I had it. That's why I count it as a relapse. Yeah. Yeah. I just know how, I, I know how those conversations go. So you get, get sober from alcohol. Now from this particular period, my experience and the experience of lots of women is that you have the eating disorder, right? Then you start drinking, which kind of lessens the eating disorder in a sense because you have something else and then you quit drinking and using the substances and then it just comes roaring back. Yeah. Was uh was that your ex- experience at all? Whack-a-mole with our mm-hmm. addictions. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, it was at first. It was because I learned by by 
giving up alcohol, I learned that my old friend Sugar had really been there from the beginning. And so I needed to, what I, this was really when, so I I dealt with that. And the way that I dealt with it is through promises, making promises to myself. So in coaching, what we teach is how to make and keep a promise that aligns with a dream. And my dream was really to be free of any addiction right? But, but in honor of having a beautiful and healthy and nourishing relationship with my body and with food, I put in place promises where I ate enough protein and enough veggies and limited sugar. I get one dessert a week. And I was able to keep that promise to myself. And I have a structure of accountability where I report promises to my coach and that really worked for me. So where alcohol, I needed to give it up. Like I can't have a drink ever. And as an alcoholic, because that first drink is sends me off to the races, but I can keep a promise with my food and that's how I've managed that. And then of course, working the 12 steps where I really have a completely different relationship with God and a higher power, that has also taught me that the reward comes from having a life that is beyond my wildest dreams. It's no longer in food or in work or in controlling my weight. It's not in the things that my mind used to think were the rewards. Yeah. You talked about having to freeze your eggs and wanting to get pregnant. When did that happen and what was that about? Yeah. So that happened last year. So I'm 37. Being a mom is something I've always known I wanted. I just have always known in my heart that it's part of my life and, you know, how God works in my life. Like I, I'm very spiritual. I always have been, I always had a relationship to a God, but I didn't learn what that really was the way that's evolved over time. And it's really changed for me. But, you know, when I moved in with Lauren, I lived on the farm. One of the jobs I had was to be a nanny for her three kids. And so I developed relationships with these kids and I just, it was just like, exactly what I needed to know I'm a mom. So then I'm getting older. So I'm like, okay, like it really is time where I need to freeze my eggs. When I made that decision, I actually didn't have the money to do it. It's an expensive procedure. I make the decision, right? The next must've been about a week or two weeks. My mother calls me. She found this key, random key that ended up being to a security deposit box where there were all of these bonds that had been taken out in my name before I was born. Stop. And I literally, yeah, I'm not, I like kid you not. Like I'm going to the bank to deposit this money and I'm like writing out the bonds. The bonds are like, you know, from the 1920s. Like I have to sign each of the back of them. And I'm like thanking each of my ancestors to contributing to my egg freeze process. That's insane. It was completely, it, it, ultimately was completely oh yeah I was like able to and then I had some savings so it was all paid for but that's very much how it worked. totally right I mean I can't I've heard, I've heard so many stories that way but that's pretty wild some bonds from the 1920s in a safety deposit box that your mom finds a key to and she decides to like go I mean that's wild that's wild, wild. and that process 
taught me how to be comfortable with my body changing and gaining weight. And because it no longer was like, I had a bigger mission. My mission was I'm getting my body ready to have a baby. And so it's okay. No matter what shape it takes, no matter, I'm still beautiful. I had to like learn how to have that relationship and language because my mind didn't have that language on its own. It really took some change. Yeah. So that, and, and, and my, I have very cursory knowledge of this, but when you, when you freeze your eggs, you have to take hormones yeah. to, to let them release. And that's where the weight gain comes exactly. in. Is that right? Correct. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So th- and that's not a super pleasant process, right? No. Okay. It was like every, no. every night I had like five shots and I'm like gaining weight and it's all bloated and you feel nasty. And then I, you know, I'm still looking for my person, my partner. Right. And so this was something that I, but the, but the being a mom was something that was just so close. Like I, I just knew instinctually that was what I wanted. So going and doing this process was pretty, has been easier for me versus like the process of dating and opening my heart to a man. So this is just a little side note, but I'm about to do the procedure of like the retrieval. So you're on these hormones for a period of 10 days, then they give you this injection and then they do the retrieval and I'm waiting in line. And there are three girls in front of me and they all have their partners with them. And they're like the cutest couples. And I'm just like, okay, God, thank you for showing me exactly what I need to see to inspire me to want that. Because until that point, I've really been like, I can do this on my own. I don't need a man. But like that really, you know, woke me up to how much I also want that too. So it was a good process, not just for my body, but also getting me serious in finding my person. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, congratulations on that. That's really cool. That whole series of events. And it's a lot like uh, pregnancy is and getting pregnant anyway. You swell, you're bloated. You're, how many it's real. do you have? Do you have? I have twin two, uh, twin three-year-old boys. Aww. Wow. Yeah. So wins. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot, but it is, it's, you know, it's really one of those things like, I'll be interested to talk to you after you you venture into, you know, motherhood, which is where you have to look at your body differently and have different conversations with your body about like, okay, what, what did my, this greater purpose, this, you know, different part, this different phase of life, this, because all the same, you know, you still have Rexy in your head and she's not going anywhere. And she expects you to be 15 and, you know, be able to, run a mile and all those calories are off or whatever. And it's just not the case anymore. And now you have less time, your body's different hormone. I mean, you cellularly change as a result. And so it is, it's a really, it's, it's one of those things that was interesting when, when for my recovery, I'm 14 years sober. And when I I had done a ton of work before the twins were born, therapy, steps many times, you know, different types of inventories, all sorts of stuff. Right. And I thought I had covered some of the deepest areas, but when the twins were born, it was that it was, that was the beginning piece. And because I became a different, per, like a, a cellularly, I like had these different experiences. It pushed me into a new place where I had to do different 
more recovery in a different way. And I didn't expect that on, on topics I really thought were resolved, but it was just like the next stage of things. And I, I feel like when you are committed to long-term recovery and doing those things over the course of time and, and the spirituality and like just interested in different ways of evolving that when that time comes where you're at that next phase and something's going to be totally different, you learn how to translate those tools. But when you're a person who's like, okay, I got sober, hands off the, you know, that's it. I'm good. I'm just going to continue to do this for the rest of my life like this. And you don't really invest in the ongoing changes. It catches you by surprise because the thing you did when you were a year, two years, three years sober is not the thing not the same thing you're going to need at five and 10. And if you aren't willing or interested, I think interested is kind of a key thing, interested in expanding on that and making, and, and just like being involved in the journey. It's hard for those old behaviors not to come up and say like, this is the only way I really see people fall out, you know, fall out of recovery as a result of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think What you just said is really important because for me, what it underlines is how life always gives me what I need to go deeper into my spirituality, which is what I need recovery and coaching for. And so I'll tell you that right now I've been in the middle of a health journey where about six months ago, the doctor discovered I, I've been having digestion issues, right? So the girl with the body, so digestion. I go to the doctor. They discover a mass in my rectum that's 10 centimeters and, you know, blocking my whole digestion. And so it sends me down this process of testing. Is it cancer? Is it not cancer? It looks like it's cancer. All the images show it is, but all the biopsies show it's not. So long story short, I go in for surgery. Finally, we're like, it's benign, but it needs to get removed. I go in for surgery. They can't remove it because the way that it's located requires either major abdominal surgery, which would leave me with a bag forever, or... I get a confirmed diagnosis for cancer because all, you know, it's probably just a couple of cells. Like it hasn't gone into any other areas of my body, but if I can get a confirmed diagnosis, then they'll shrink it. They'll, they'll shrink it through radiation and chemo, which would be the best bet for me to actually keep, you know, my bathroom privileges. So all of this is happening in the middle of COVID, in the middle of, New world order. Yeah. Right? New world. Oh, man. Like, and I'm living with my... This was three months old, three months ago. This was all started in October. This Okay, okay. Yeah. But then, so I'm in Boston. So I was supposed to have the surgery in New York, but then he wants to do major abdominal surgery. Now I'm looking for second opinions. I come to Boston. I'm living with my parents. I'm now in the middle of COVID and I'm desperately seeking a second opinion and finding out what I'm going to do. I end up finding a doctor in California who can do the surgery that I need. That's why my dad and I are hopping on a plane on Sunday. Like literally I'm in the middle of this. This was like 
real time. Okay. And am I scared? Have I gone through moments of the doom and gloom and dark of, oh my God, what the hell? How is this going to change my life? Like, what if they can't fix me? Right. So like, I have all those thoughts. I'm reporting all of those thoughts to other people every single day. I have a fun little text game that I play (laughs) with my coaches where we're like all zapping these thoughts together. But the bigger thing is that I've gone so I'm in the middle of also my amends with my trial steps. I literally, you know, resolving my past haunting, like my past relationship with my ex-boyfriend. We just did. We just did a a resolve on Saturday. And I swear, God gives me everything I need to go through this moment. I really feel protected and carried in a way I could never have dreamed of when I was active. And before, I've always been the girl who was so scared and so controlling and it was so obsessive. None of that is happening. And that is a result of this work. And so for me, it makes me want to go deeper in the work and deeper in giving back and doing the work my sponsee and giving away what I have, because that's what has me walk through all of it. I have a uh, a friend, colleague who had cancer in her rectum and she, she always says she had, she survive she's 10 five or 10 years whatever the window is when you're out of it um to be fully recovered and she always talks about her ass cancer she says of course i got ass cancer she said no i couldn't get a better cancer i had to t- now i have to tell people i have cancer of the ass and, and um it's so funny she's so funny she's like you're devastated but then you're like seriously <laughs> <laughs> I'm like they're finally removing this about my ass. Right? <laughs> like the girl who doesn't get pleasure, like the the anorexic who doesn't get to experience joy, right? Yeah. All of that emotion getting suppressed, that's what turns into disease. Right, right. right. So they're removing my stick of my ass. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it's 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 you know, it's one of those things where you just, I think that's kind of like where it comes to, which is that we're all going to have our, our, you know, day in the ring, right? We don't know what it's going to be and we don't know how many times we don't, you know? And so when you live the path of trying to get well, when there isn't crisis going on, on a regular basis, you're so much better prepared for when, you know, the bottom falls out or whatever, or, and, or what looks like the bottom falling out that isn't, you know, and that's, that, that's the cool thing about being on the journey is, you know, you don't know what it's going to look like. And so you have like this, this universal set of tools that are going to work in every situation, but you have to keep them sharp and you have to keep picking up more and you have to continually renew your faith in those tools. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a process. And what I love about she recovers and, and kind of just the recovery community in general is you don't have to be in recovery from substances or an eating disorder. I mean, you can be in any recovery from anything, whether that's a domestic violence relationship, even cancer. I mean, cancer, you know, cancer survivors, like that is one of those things where it pushes you to look deeper, to find fate. You know, there's all of these things, whatever the recovery is, 
it's valid and the tools work. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think the other thing that I would just offer in everything that you say, Echo, is that the way that coaching has also helped shape my life is it gave me, it gave me the tools to actually dream, like actually go, okay, I'm sober. Cause I didn't get sober to stop drinking. Most people don't, right? They don't get sober to stop the vice. The vice is but a symptom or the, the addictive, the addictive substance is but a symptom. We get sober to live a life that is beyond our wildest dreams. And when I got sober, it was like, okay, I'm not drinking. I used to reward myself in all these unhealthy ways. Now what? How am I going to reward? How do I even design what I want? How do I even, you know, no, I don't know. And then really having the ability to get clear about what I wanted in the different areas of my life for my love life, for my financial life, for my career success, and then actually take the concrete steps to make it happen. Like I had never actually had honest, intimate relation conversations with people because I'd always avoided that by numbing out with my substance or by leaving. Those were pretty much the two modes I had, right? Be a doormat, numb out, or leave. Staying <laughs> 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 and going deeper was mm-hmm. not an option for me. And I didn't have the tools to do that. And 12 steps was has been incredible, but also... The tools we have in life coaching has been incredible. And I say all that because one of the things that we want to offer your community is access to our online coaching community. It's sort of like another community like She Recovers where you pay a one-time fee and you have access not only to these tools to how to dream about your life and how to have honest conversations and the script to have honest conversations grace and with wisdom, but also a community like what you see here where there's uh, Zoom calls every single week. And you also, so it, it having people where you can connect and talk through these things is essential, right? It is just part, it's part of the rec- recovery process where you have the circle in AA where it's like body and mind and spirituality, right? This is the body part. So having the community of people and also you get a free private coaching session. And that is something we want to offer people, especially when you're sober, because how to design a life in sobriety that is beyond your wildest dreams is not something that comes naturally in many ways. Okay. So where can people find this information? Sure. If you type into your browser, inneru, I-N-N-E-R-U dot coach. Got it. Okay. So I-N-N-E-R, the letter U dot coach. And this beautiful website comes up. It's here for 50% off. And they the code is courage to change 75. Exactly. Woo. Okay. Awesome. And this will be, if you forget this, this will be in the show notes, interview.coach. And if you completely forget podcast at lionrockrecovery.com is our email. 
That is awesome. That is awesome. And and you can be in reco- want to be in recovery from anything. You can be in recovery from anything or not even in recovery. You any this is open to everybody and anywhere. And I will say usually we give a $75 off, but right now we're in a special mode because the world has been the world is falling apart. <laughs> what are we going to do? <laughs> now more than ever this I world mean, applies. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. The, uh, the, some of the people, my friends will call me, I'm just so upset. You know, I'm like, oh, why? Cause there's a pandemic. Yeah. Okay. So you're human and normal. Great. You know, like it's pretty normal guys. Like if you're upset or feeling feelings or depressed or grieving or scared or any of those feelings, you have won the grand prize of being human. <laughs> exactly. A hundred percent. And then like, and then I, I think, you know, personally, all the feelings are normal. All the feelings should be expressed, please. And what are we going to do about it? How do we rise in this moment? Because as people who are sober, I personally believe I have a responsibility to help others. And that's what keeps me sober and keeps me connected to the higher reason why this is all here which I think it's to bring us closer and unite us and to actually have us take on the healing that must be done in the world. Now's the perfect chance. I keep saying privately to people, of course, now I'm going to say, um, but that there is nothing that I can think of that would globally bring the world and corporate America, corporations, the economy, all these things to its knees. Not that I would wish that, to be clear, but that, you know, the ability to to, to create standstill in a world that is so chaotic, whether or not that we would have wished it, there's certainly stuff we can make, take to use to become better, to our advantage, to rethink, you know, there's the, we rethink things, re, really rethink things. And whether that's in your own life, whether that's in the environment, whether that's in, you know, corporations or how we do things, there's no time in the world I can think of where, you know, the airlines would stop, where the, the, the cruise ships would give the ocean a break, where the, you know, where all these different, you know, pieces of the puzzle would just stop. And, you know, for the families that are hurting and and can't pay their, you know, again, wouldn't wish this situation. Absolutely not. And I hope that we all can use it to um, make things better and just take advantage, uh, turn it into some sort of betterment. Yeah. I mean, I think that's, for me, one of the reasons why community is so important during this moment. I know on NRU, we have weekly calls and people are really talking about how do I reinvent my business right now? How do I come out on the other side of this, positioning myself to not only keep an income stream, but even be able to capitalize on whatever is next. And it gives business owners a really unique opportunity or people who have been thinking about transition for a while, but haven't been able to make that jump. It's a perfect moment to go, okay, I have this skill set. 
who in the world needs this skill set? Because the people who were, you know, we need, we have different needs than we even did three months ago, right? The people who are making masks, the people who are making Purell, the people who are making Charmin. There are all these people that actually the demand is in a different place, right? So then how do you use your skill set? How do you use what you have to go offer yourself to those places that actually have a need? So it really is a moment of reinvention. And if you're in a conversation about that, it's much more easier to navigate it because you're getting ideas and you're having conversations and you're feeling connected versus the isolation of being behind a computer and just plugging away and feeling pretty alone and disconnected. So please, you know, get connected. We even do free coaching right now in the morning for anybody in the world that wants to join at 9am and you'll find that on the website, but it's just another way that we're providing a forum for people to talk and share and get through this moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. Who knew that you needed so much toilet paper for a respiratory virus? I mean, things are, this just Charmin's, Charmin's bright shining moment could have never predicted. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, I, I adore you. You're amazing. And I definitely, I would love to check in with you, see how California goes. Maybe we can do an an Instagram live and do a little catch up on that and see how things are. And um, thank you so much for being here and supporting the listeners and supporting all the people that you, that you're helping through your coaching. And, and uh, we will put interview.coach. We will put that on the, in the show notes. So if you're wondering interview.coach courage to change 75. And if you forget all of this, can't remember anything, don't want to rewind to this podcast, just email us at podcast at lionrockrecovery.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Ashley, for having me and also the work that you do to help other people. It's so important. And I just really am grateful for you and the work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Likewise, best of luck to you. And we'll talk soon. This podcast is sponsored by Lion Rock Recovery. Lion Rock provides online substance abuse counseling where clients can get help from the privacy of their own home. They are accredited by the Joint Commission and sessions are private, affordable, and user-friendly. Call their free helpline at 800-258-6550 or visit www.lionrockrecovery.com for more information.